God made me a long time ago. Oh, she paused and she said, Grandpa, did God make me too? Yes, indeed, honey. God made you just a little while ago. And she reached up and touched their faces, her face and then his face. And then she observed, Grandpa, God's getting better at this, don't you think? (laughs) There it is. All right. Is this not working? Oh, you know what? It works better if it's on. There we go. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if we, uh, uh, if we were to take a, a, a snapshot of our community and our country, uh, we, we have been long called a melting pot here in the United States. Uh, while we were serving in Canada, we called it a cultural mosaic. Uh, because in Canada, each particular culture kept its own identity. Uh, they, they were not, uh, they were not uh, required to learn another language. Uh, they, they, matter of fact, Canada is bilingual in French and English as their two official national languages. Uh, when my, uh, two generations ago, when my grandfather immigrated from Germany to the United States, it was very common in his uh, generation uh, to quickly lose your European uh, native tongue and to begin to speak English. Uh, But it wasn't too long ago uh, that one news commentator mentioned that we had uh, our first swearing-in ceremony for brand-new United States citizens entirely in Spanish. And we are are becoming a a cultural mosaic where we have a variety of cultures and uh, we have uh, uh, people that are living longer, so we're having a multi-generational environment. We're having uh, a variety of people in the area of their educational backgrounds and we certainly are aware that we have variety in terms of our economic backgrounds. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, that's what's out there in this world today. That's what's out there in our culture. It's multi-generational, multicultural, multi-academic, and multi-economic. That's the reality that we have to live with. But you see, if we were to assume that the High Point is going to become not only a happy church, but a healthy church, then we have to assume uh, that we are not trying just to be happy, but are really our focus is becoming holy. That's what really causes a church to become healthy, is when its congregation purposes itself by the power of the Spirit and the preaching of the Word to become holy people. And you know what happens when you leave this room, when you leave this auditorium, when you leave this worship center, uh, then what happens is that you go out into this multicultural world and you begin to share with people uh, that notice that you are in fact a holy person because holiness will stand out like a sore thumb in our culture. And they're going to ask you this question. What makes you so different from the rest of the people in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in whatever other environment you happen to meet people? What makes you so different? 
And you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted to say one of two things. Most times you might be capitulate and just simply say 30 grams of fiber a day. That's what makes me different. I eat vegetables and I eat fruit and I get 30 grams of fiber and that's what makes all the difference. Now I'm being ridiculous, aren't I? Because that really, because there are so many more subtle ways that we end up causing the attention to be focused on us. But really what makes a person holy has nothing to do with fibers, vegetables, fruit, exercise, or any kind of a lifestyle thing. Holiness is a willingness to be able to not only respond to the gospel truth and salvation, but to live the gospel truth daily as it sanctifies us and causes us to pick up the image of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a blend of the opportunity that we have to know Jesus, to know God through the, the power of the cross, and to be able to live a life that exudes the life of Christ out in the world today. You see, that's what go and tell means, that you go out there in the community and by the very essence of your life, you proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and you give God the credit for what goes on in your life. Now, the book of Acts is a historical documentation of the early church put together for Luke, by Luke, for somebody else. It certainly isn't the, the, the pattern that we're supposed to embrace, but there are some things in there that we should be able to take it and pay attention to. In Luke chapter 1, uh, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his apostles the Great Commission. Go, and while you are going into all the world, baptize and preach the gospel and teach those people who believe to obey. Go. And so the, the imperative is to go. But he says, but don't go until you get the Holy Spirit. So they came back after the ascension and they began to pray. They met in the upper room and they began to pray fervently. And then Acts chapter 2 verse 4, the Holy Spirit descended upon them as in tongues of fire and they began to speak in languages that were unknown to them. And Peter went out and he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He went out and he told people that uh, this was the, uh, the, the Savior, the person that was, a, was, a, was pointed to in all the scriptures to come into the world. This is the person that you persecuted and died, but he has not succumbed to the grave. He has risen from the dead, and he is now uh, ascended into the heaven with the Father. And upon this name you must be saved. And 14 times... 14 times in all of the book of Acts, we see something similar to this. And great numbers were added to them daily. You see, ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't because they came here. You went out. You went out and told them about Jesus Christ. And then you said, come and see. You see, ladies and gentlemen, and if we are a healthy, holy church, what eventually happens is all those people are sitting in the pews. We have a multi-generational, multicultural, multi-academic, and multi-economic congregation. If we're doing what God has commanded us to do, 
then the what, what, well, a slice of what's out there will also be in here. We don't come to a church because all the people that attend the church are just like me. Then you join a, a social club if you want that. Go to a country club. Play golf. But you'll find even there that the generational, cultural, economic, academic lines are blurred. You see, ladies and gentlemen, that's what church is. It's not church because we aim to go out and drag people in here who are multicultural, multi-generational, multi-economic, multi-academic. We don't want them in here just because we want to say we have this. We want to preach the gospel. And we realize that what binds all of these different factors together is not the fact that we all look the same, been educated the same, all earned the same amount of money, and we're all the same age. That has nothing to do with it. What binds us together is that we, we became Christians through G preaching of the cross, and we want to follow Jesus and make him the Lord of our life. That's what binds us together. That's what brings us together. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, if we do that, there's a dilemma. So how does one pastor relate to a multi-generational, multicultural, varied economically, varied educational congregation with so many different people? Here I am. I'm going to stand here. I'm a 65-year-old fat white man. I'll repeat it for those people that didn't hear it. That'll teach you to sleep. I'm a 65-year-old fat white man that grew up in the south side of Chicago, one of the most segregated cities in the north, that knows enough Spanish to be able to insult somebody in uh, Hispanic. I don't have any idea about an Asian culture, and I'm afraid if I bow down, I might hit their heads when they bow down. I haven't the faintest idea. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen? The 65-year-old fat man who was raised on the southwest side of Chicago and doesn't think that there's any other team in baseball but the Chicago Cubs <laughs> has been called to shepherd a multi-generational, multicultural, varied economic, and varied academic congregation. That's what we've been called to shepherd. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Paul realizes that this is the case for his young, two, two young shepherds, Timothy and Titus, and he gives them some very specific directions on how to relate to certain varieties of people in his congregation that we will then derive some principles from in order to help us in our current situation. So, if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to page 1858. I took the time to look it up. Page 1858. It's Titus chapter 2. We don't do much in the book of Titus because it's duplicated very much in T uh, Timothy 1st and 2nd. But we're going to read this because he gives a little bit more explanation about how to relate and what these needs are for various groups in the congregation. We all there? Come on, come on. This is my time. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. 
Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the Word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God and Savior attractive. Now that is some very specific directions uh, that Paul has given Titus. Now turn back 11 pages uh, to uh, 1849, or nine pages, and uh, we're going to take a look, and we'll do this as we come across these passages. Uh, there is some uh, further teaching about uh, uh, widows and elders uh, that Timothy is getting that Titus did not. Uh, so let's take a look at these passages. How does, how does a pastor relate to men, older and younger? He makes the distinction, older and younger. The first one, he says, is this, older men, Respond to them as if they were your father. Be able to look up to them with reverence and dignity and encourage them to do all the things uh, that invite respect and honor uh, from people that are younger in the congregation. And so he said, do not, do not rebuke them harshly. And by that he means, the word harshly there, it means do not, do not strike at them. In other words, when you're going to rebuke somebody, uh, if you were going to say something of a constructively critical way to your father, you would do it in a respectful and honoring manner, and he's encouraging Timothy to do that too. Treat these men, now you have to remember that likely that Timothy and Titus were probably young 30s. And so they're looking at a, con they're looking at a congregation where older men uh, would actually be the same age as their dads. And so he said, treat them with the reverence and honor that you would treat your dad. And that's the way he wants them to treat older men. Now he said, how about younger men? How do you relate to younger men? Now these would be more uh, Timothy and Titus's peers. Respond to them as if they were your brother. Well, I'm assuming he means something different than the way I responded to my brother. Fortunately for me and my brother and I are beginning to re uh, reconnect a bit since my father's death. And that's a good thing. There's no animosity between us, but there's a, there's a, there's a gulf of distance between us. And so what Timothy, is what Timothy is encouraged and Titus is encouraged is to treat them as a brother, to treat them as somebody part of your family. And that is that they should be encouraged, and Titus, to encourage them towards self-control. What Titus is saying to them is this. They should manage their tempers. They should not be hot-tempered. They should control their tongues. They should be watchful over their ambitions. They should not want more than they can have because they should be concerned about avarice. And they need to put biblical boundaries around their sexual desires and drives. So treat them like your brother. 
Treat them to be self-controlled, and that's exactly what young men need, is self-control. What about older women? Timothy says then, respond as if they were your mother. Encourage them to be reverent. They're not to be backbiters. They should be aware of God's presence. They should be able to teach what is good to the women that are coming up into their congregations so that they become godly women uh, that love their husbands and love their children and and, uh, build a, a gracious home. What about younger women? Respond as if she was your sister. And he adds this with all propriety and with all purity. I became a pastor in, uh, in January of 1988, and my first church was an associate position up in Canada at an evangelical free church uh, heart, deep in the heart of the Mennonite country. And uh, I wasn't there too long before I became aware that there was a couple in our church that was undergoing some marital difficulties, and I met with her because she's the one that initiated it, and then I met with him to find out what was going on from his side of the coin, and we started meeting as a couple together uh, to be able to try and see if we can work out those difficulties. Well, one Wednesday night when I was in my office and they had our children's program going on, she had called me and said, can I come and see you? And I said, sure, I'll be at church. You come in there and see me. Well, she closed the door uh, behind me. It was a counseling session. And she closed the door and she said, she looked at me like this, I need a hug. And I said, you can get your hug from your husband. Now, if anybody knows me, I am not shy about hugs. But there was something in my spirit that said there was more to this hug than just a demonstration of pastoral affection. And had I given in, had I ignored that sign, who knows where that had been and how short my ministry would have been. Because Timothy is encouraged by Paul that when it comes to a younger woman, you must be absolutely pure and act in a very proprietary manner when these women come in and you have to deal with them. Because they have pastoral needs, but you have to be sure to draw a line that says, over this line I will not cross. It wasn't too long after uh, that that we uh, built a new church. We went from a church of about 300, eventually up to about 1,000, because we had this new facility. And we're walking through the office, and uh, I noticed, I noticed that the, the walls were up, at the, uh, and I said, are there no windows in the offices? And they said, no. I said, will the doors have windows? No. And I said, well, I, I can't work here. I can't work here because there's no the visual, a sense of visual accountability when I close my door. So they hadn't manufactured the doors yet, so they put in a, a, an order, and each of the doors in all of the offices now had about an eight-inch wide by about a, a, a two-and-a-half-foot wide uh, tall window placed in there so that anybody that was passing by could see what was happening in the office. You see, ladies and gentlemen, pastors need to be able to be very sensitive when you're dealing with women to have propriety and a sense of absolute purity. 
You cannot allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to be drugged through the mud because you have no self-control and you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable position. You cannot. I cannot. And so, ladies and gentlemen, Paul admonishes both of these young pastors to have a very, very appropriate level of, uh, of purity uh, with these women. And they are to be encouraged uh, to be uh, the, the wife uh, that their husband wants them to be. That's why I said to her, your husband is the one that you need a hug from. We'll work to see that that happens, but I'm not the person who's going to get in the way. Now, she was disappointed and she was hurt. And in so many words, pastorally, lovingly, I said to her, deal with it. I had to, pastorally, of course, you know. <laughs> cup of cold water. Ha! Wake up, sister. I'm your pastor, not your lover. But you have to be careful. You have to be very careful. But they are part of the congregation. They do have an, a need for their shepherd to shepherd them within certain bounds. The next thing that Paul takes a look at here is the area of widows. And he spends a, a considerable length of time talking about widows uh, that are uh, in the church. Now, of course, uh, life expectancies were different at that time. Uh, women still outlived men. Uh, men died, and they were leaving their uh, widows, uh, their wives widowed. And, uh, and you, have to, you have to understand that, uh, that, that normally speaking, in that culture, uh, a woman's value was uh, to whom she was married. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, this is where the, where the, where the church, where Jesus Christ and where, where God has he dealt with all, all, all during the Old Testament, made, made a very, very different distinction. I, I'm not going to deal with the fact that the, each person needs to be dealt with uh, on, by, by themselves. And so if you, if you don't mind, let me read to you not many chapters after we find the first, the ten, the first rendition of the Ten Commandments, uh, which is in chapter 20 of Exodus. In chapter 22 of Exodus, when, Paul start, when, when Moses starts to, uh, to give out this, this code of living, he talks about this. He said this in, in, tw in 20, 22, 21. He said, Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. You see, what God was trying to impress upon them that there are certain people within the culture of Israel, within the nation of Israel, that are exceptionally vulnerable because of their, their status in life. Widows, orphans, and those people who came from a foreign culture that wanted to stay and, and be a part of Israel, these were called aliens. You remember the story of Ruth? Well, the, she was a daughter-in-law. Uh, Naomi, his husband, uh, left uh, with two kids uh, when a famine struck around Bethlehem, and he went into Moab, and uh, while he was there, he died. His two, or his two sons married uh, Moabitess women, and uh, one of them decided, uh, both the sons died, and the one of them decided to stay, and the other one decided to come uh, and with Naomi back to her land of Bethlehem after the drought had finished up. 
And so Ruth is this Moabitess uh, widow that's now joining her mother-in-law as they go back to Israel. And you see, Israel had a set of code of uh, ethics and laws that took care of people like that. Allow them to glean. Allow them to find food. that They had to work for it, but they were, it was provided for them. Do not do a second harvest. Allow the poor, the alien, the fatherless to be able to glean around the edges of the field so that they can have something to eat. The same thing was found in Deuteronomy chapter, tw- chapter 10, verses 18, uh, 17. Uh, it says this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. You see, ladies and gentlemen, all through the, 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 the religion of Israel, there was a, there was a providing for, a, a sensitivity to, and an awareness of the, of the vulnerability of a certain group of people. And the church of Jesus Christ is no different. It had widows, and it had widows who were truly in need. It said, widows, uh, uh, give them proper recognition. Now, when Paul said that to Timothy, he did not mean simply to say, oh, there's one, and there's one, oh, there's another two up there. What he meant there was, give them the proper recognition, and that means give them the proper support, both economically, emotionally, and the honor that they deserved. And so he said, be sensitive to their needs and be able to meet those needs. So he said, first of all, he said this, be discriminating. Not every widow is truly a widow in need. He said, those people who have, uh, those widows who have family, those family members ought to take care of their widows. He said, a a family that doesn't take care of their their widow uh, is is worse than an infidel. Even, Even the pagans take care of their own. So he encouraged the families first to take care of their widows. And he said, younger widows, they should be encouraged to marry because they'll falter in their devotion and their service to God because they have have a need to be with a man. But he said there's a slice of the widow category that truly is a widow, that does not have family and is old enough I went to visit uh, several of these widows in our church in Manitoba, and uh, it was really interesting. They were two sisters. They had married different men, and they both, uh, both of the husbands had died, and these two sisters were now living uh, on separate floors of the same apartment complex. So when I used to visit them, they used to, uh, I used to meet in one, and, and, and one apartment, and then the next time I would visit them in, in, the, in the next apartment. And they'd have a nice little spread. Uh, buns and cheese was a very common thing with very strong coffee. Uh, the Mennonites have a very, very good tradition about what you serve when you're visiting. And so I would visit them, and uh, I asked them one time, pastors can ask these kind of questions. I said, do you ladies ever think about remarrying? And they started laughing. I've never heard these two women laugh so hard in my life. They said, oh, no, Pastor Bill, we would never, we loved our husbands so much, we would never, ever possibly find somebody just like them, and we, we're not going to remarry. But then they, all of them, both of them, at the same time, stopped laughing, and they looked at me, and one of them said, but we do enjoy the company of a man once in a while. 
And one of the ladies that I got to know when her husband had died, she said the loneliest, the loneliest walk after her husband died was walking down the center aisle of the church and taking her seat. The loneliest moment in her life was that time. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we need to be aware of these things. Be discriminating, but also be dignified. Allow them, give them an opportunity to support what's going on in the church. Give them an opportunity to serve because they have a desire to serve. So just that your aid is not just simply taken and given to them with, uh, with no forethought of how it's being received, but allow them to be able to be dignified and have an opportunity to uh, support the church. The second group, that's, uh, well, the, the next group that goes on is the elders. Timothy said that these are the men that direct the affairs of the church, especially those that preach and teach. Now, many, many denominations have uh, said that this was a discrimination between lay leaders and professional pastoral staff. Well, the really, if, if the, the real translation of this passage should read, let, I'll read it, be especially concerned about those who direct the affairs of the church. That is, that is those who preach and teach. You see, he's already told the church that an elder must be able to teach. And so uh, in, in many of these situations where there were house churches, elders were the pastors. And he was saying there that he said they are worth a double honor. Now that doesn't mean that you need to pay me double what you pay somebody else. I'll let it die. I won't, I won't say anymore. Doesn't mean you can't, but it wasn't, it's not what it's supposed to. I said it. Doggone it. But it does mean, what he says there is a double honor, meaning honorarium, yes, but honor, respect, yes. I have said this once before, and I'll say it again. The one thing, you can, you can like me or not like me. You can love me or not love me. But the one thing I want from you is respect. I need to have your respect. And that is what a congregation's obligation is to its pastor, is that it, does, it meets his honorarium needs, but it also gives him honor and respect. They are worth that. But, because church leaders are prone, now I hate to say this, and I, and I, I put a big question mark next to my notes, and I didn't know whether to say this, because this is not true of you now. But there was a, there's a saying that one of the guys uh, that was an elder said to me once, he said, he said, you can always tell the leader in a Christian church, they're the ones with the arrows in the back. You see, ladies and gentlemen, elders and leaders in the church are very much prone to criticism, and they're very much prone to accusations. And if every time a pastor is, uh, does something that's displeasing, they have to end up having, the elders have to hear an endless story of nitpicky complaints, then they would spend all their time trying to address these concerns in the congregation. So he said, even to be entertained, it needs to be under the evidence of two, reliable, two or three reliable witnesses. In order to bring a, an allegation or a criticism against a church leader, it needs to be substantiated by two or three different allegations. Now, you're sitting there saying, you know what, I saw Pastor Bill coming out of a bar the other day. Man, that concerns me. 
And what do you do with that? You just die with that? Well, he said, I can't bring, and it's gossiping if I go ask anybody else, and, and what do I do? Will you quietly say this to an elder, and they hold it close to the vest? If somebody else comes along and says, you know what, on a different day, in a different bar, I saw Pastor Bill come out. Then they bring it to the elder and you say, this uh, may be nothing, it may be something. And that elder then says, I have two complaints, I need to go talk to Pastor Bill. So he comes and talks to Pastor Bill and Pastor Bill says, you know what, I've been meeting with a couple of guys in my community and this is where they chose to meet. I go in there and have a Pepsi and they have a beer and we talk and we relate and we talk, I talk about the gospel with them because that's, they, that's, that's where they're at. <laughs> I thought you had a little bit of a tippy problem there. No, 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 not at all. But you have to be aware, Pastor, that there are people seeing you from the congregation that see you walk out of there, and you need to be aware of that. Well, thank you, thank you very much. You can go back and share with them. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, there needs to be some place that a, a congregant can go that doesn't need to be gossiping about the pastor or about another elder, that they feel free to be able to do that. And that's what an elder chairman is for. It's a person that's been designated by the, by the board uh, to be able to be the clearinghouse. He brings these concerns. And if there's a concern about an elder, that's what you go to the pastor for. Unless the pastor and elder are colluding together. Then you've got bigger problems. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, even to be entertained, it must come from two or three witnesses. But it says this, if they're substantiated, then there needs to be a rebuke. But the rebuke needs to be done in private. Because if the, if the elder or pastor repents, he still has a ministry that needs to be dealt with. But if he's unrepentant in his attitude, then the rebuke needs to be public. Now, we don't give out the details of the rebuke. You don't give out all the, all the particulars about why this rebuke came about. But you need to be able to say that we followed Matthew 18. The elder or pastor was, was confronted with his behavior. He said, yes, that's me, but I don't care. And we had to be able to say we had to let him go. But those things happen. Those things happen. And they're, they're, your bylaws have paths for that to be taken care of. So Timothy gets these admonitions. He talks about slaves. Now, a lot of people ask themselves, why wasn't slavery abolished by the Christian religion? Slavery is a terrible thing. It, uh, it demeans the people because they're denied their personhood. They have, they're treated as property. They don't have any choices, and they're coerced into serving. It's a terrible thing. But you have to realize in Rome alone, in Rome alone, one-third of the population was slaves. And so really what the gospel does is doesn't attack the political nature of slavery, it attacks the very core of slavery. Well, what happens if the slave then has a change of perspective and says that I don't want, I don't, you're forcing me to do this. What if the slave says, I want to do it willingly. Oh, there's a change. And ladies and gentlemen, the gospel brought about this change in voluntary, slave, voluntary servitude that Paul would consider himself to be what is called a bond servant, 
which is a slave that gives himself over fully to his master by putting a wooden post in his ear. And everybody knew that this person had the freedom to be able to be a free person in Rome, but this post in the ear signaled that, yes, I want to remain a permanent, voluntary slave to my master because he's been good to me. And that's how Paul used it. He said, I am what? A bond slave to Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, I want to serve him with all my life. And so Paul used that image of that little wooden peg in the ear in order to be able to communicate exactly the relationship that he had with Jesus. And that underpinning of slavery was completely demolished, and slavery fell not long after that. You see, that was what was happening there. So he gives some admonitions to slaves. He said, serve their employer that because it's one worthy of respect. Even if you're, see, what happens is that the Christian church knew no bounds. There would be, there would be a, a master in the pew and a slave would be an elder. You see, that's the way it was in the Christian church. As soon as they left there, the roles were reversed. And so what he says is, slaves, treat your masters worthy respect, especially those that are believers, because you have a tendency to, to take a more casual, more relaxed, more a peer relationship with them. That's not true. Demonstrate that you are completely trustworthy. And he said this to the minister. I'm, I'm going to tell you this truly. I, I want you to listen to me, Timothy. I want you to take what follows seriously. He said, keep these instructions, especially with elders and all these other relationships that I've talked about. He said, first of all, be fair. Don't order the affairs of the church showing partiality. Now, it is true, it is true that one of the very first signals of dissatisfaction in the church is a person's giving pattern. It is true. When somebody's not happy, happy or somebody's dissatisfied for, for right reasons or wrong reasons, the very, one of the very first things they do is they begin to fudge back on their giving. Now, as a pastor, wouldn't it be interesting, wouldn't it be imperative to know that there was somebody struggling in the pew? But what if I found out that this person was a huge giver? Would that maybe shape the way I was going to talk with this person? Would it maybe shape the priorities of the fellowship if I knew that if I said what I should have said, this person would leave, and along with them, their checkbook? You see, ladies and gentlemen, there is to be no partiality. There is to be no favoritism. God is a God who does not show partiality, does not show favoritism. Each one of you gets the same degree of care, compassion, encouragement, admonition, exhortation, whatever it happens to be, you get the same thing from your pastor because he's been encouraged, admonished, slapped across the face by God not to show partiality or favoritism. He said, be fair. Second thing he said this is be prudent. Do not lay hands on quickly. Ponder, think, get counsel, bathe it in prayer. I heard this one time, it says that the expedient thing and the right thing are rarely the same thing. So don't be hasty, be prudent. The third thing he says is be fit. Don't let false or misguided senses of asceticism 
pre uh, prevent you from getting the kind of care and treatment that you need for your ailments. In this particular case, he was saying, take a little bit of wine. It helps settle your stomach. So if you've got a little tickle in your throat and you begin to see a, co a cold coming onto the horizon, maybe it's okay to cancel a meeting and go home and get to bed early. Do what you need. It's a long battle. It's a long run. Take care of yourself. And the third thing he says is be discerning. He said, love may be uh, at first sight, but ladies and gentlemen, reality is rarely at first sight. It may be that first impressions are the most lasting, but ladies and gentlemen, first impressions are also the most easily manipulated. And he said, cream does always rise to the top. It's true for raw milk and it's true in life that if you observe and wait, slowly but surely, a person's godliness and their good works will begin to become apparent. So he said this, don't be discerning when you do this. Now there's three things I want to talk to you about as it relates to our congregation. The pastor is to teach and model that which binds us together. You know, ladies and gentlemen, in one sense, the gospel is very exclusive. What did Jesus say in the upper room? He said, no one comes to the Father but through me. What did Peter say in his, uh, one of his preaching in Acts chapter 4? He said, there is no other name in, under heaven whereby you must get saved other than Jesus Christ. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not all paths lead to God. There's only one path that leads to God, and that's Jesus Christ. It's so in some senses it's very exclusive. But in other senses, the gospel is very inclusive. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was admonished to go into the home of Cornelius because God in a vision has said, what I have made, nothing is unclean. Go. In Acts chapter 15, we read that the Jerusalem council uh, made a very wise decision because they saw the fruitfulness of the gospel amongst the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, I am not afraid, ashamed of the gospel because the very power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. There were only two categories of people, Jews and Gentiles, and he says it works for both. Galatians chapter 3 says this, for we are all one in Christ. So ladies and gentlemen, the pastor needs to focus on the gospel. It's the gospel that saves us, and it's the gospel that sanctifies us. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what got us all here in the first place, the gospel. Secondly, the pastor needs to uh, teach and model forbearance. I love this passage in Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with, look at, look at the list of words that he says, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Jesus says, hey, take the log out of your own eye and then worry about the speck in somebody else's. Be more concerned about what's going on in your life. And you know what? You need to overlook a lot of things. Overlook it. And then he said this, meet others' needs. Now here's an example. The younger you are, the more you text. The older you are, the more you appreciate 
face to face. And somewhere in between. Last week, Monday, we were debating about whether we should go home and uh, take care of our lawn and Beaver Dam, and we had already secured the services of the son of one of our guys in our church uh, uh, in Beaver Dam to come and do that, but we weren't sure he got it done. So I called him on his phone, got the message machine. I called his parents, got the message machine. Finally, I said, you know what? He texted me one time, so I texted him a message. He's a high school senior. Three minutes later, I got an answer. <laughs> Three minutes later. So when you go to the West Town Mall and you see all those kids walking around with their phones like this, oh, sorry, hon, uh, when you walk around with your phone, they're, they're answering very important messages from their parents and employers about their work. <laughs> My foot. Back in 08, when we started to consider our change in our format from two services to one service, we wanted to be able to send out a number of newsletters to people about updates about why and the where. And we asked people to give us their email addresses, and about 85% of you gave us your email addresses. But 15% of you said we'd prefer a letter. So we made mention of that one time in church on Sunday. We said, we're going to send, uh, uh, send an email out, and the rest of you will get it by snail mail. Now, to us, that is just a term that describes post office. But somebody came back, some people, it's not just one, some people came back and they said, you know what, Pastor, we're people that wanted to get the letter, but when you say snail mail, it makes it, it's kind of demeaning. It's, it makes us look like we're second-rate citizens. You know, so I said, okay, fine, we apologize, we was, it was not intended to be that way, but we recognize that it could be taken that way, Instead of saying snail mail now, we say, we say we'll send it to you via letter through the post office. It recognizes that people have different needs. People have different ways of communicating. And we have a multi-generational church, so younger to older is going to be a very much a factor. So pastors need to be aware that they need to talk to people differently. They need to relate to people differently. They need to be aware of how this one generation communicates and how the other one communicates because not, all th not one thing will work for everybody. But you see, that's what happens when you have a pastor who's sensitive to the needs of the flock. And Paul was very much concerned about Timothy and Titus because they represented a, a multi-generational, multicultural, multi-ethnic, a, a different group of people. And ladies and gentlemen, the culture out there is dying without Jesus. Tell them about Jesus and bring them to church. And you know what? High Point will be a sliver of Madison. Because it will be exactly where you work, where you live, where you play. These people will come to Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you that you've uh, placed that burden of responsibility on our flock to be able to go and tell. And Lord, we pray that when people notice their holy lives, they would not absorb the credit themselves, but be transparent and pass it on to Jesus. He is the, God, he is the person that saves. He is the person that sanctifies. And so, gracious Father, the good news of Jesus Christ is what we proclaim that there is no other name upon and under heaven by which a person can be saved other than Jesus Christ. We preach it boldly, we proclaim it proudly, 
And Lord, we live it personally. So gracious Father, thank you. Thank you that you draw all people to yourself and you bring them together under the banner of Jesus. But help us to recognize that we need to minister uniquely to each one. We pray that you grace us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.